your Bibles now, if you would please, and we'll open them to Matthew chapter 6. And I want to call your attention to just one verse of Scripture today. We are going to read just a little bit more, but we have one main Scripture that I want to talk about. And this is the opening uh, verse of the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that could be better called the model prayer, or perhaps the disciples' prayer, because this was a teaching tool that was used by Jesus, and he was instructing uh, the people on the proper way to pray. Now, we're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is correcting the practice of worship. Uh, Because the scribes and Pharisees, who were the religious leaders at that time, were wrong in their theology, they were also wrong in their habits of worship. They were wrong in their worship in relation to others and wrong in their relation, uh, how they worshipped in relation to themselves and also wrong in the way they worshipped in relation to God, who is deity. And so in this part of the sermon, uh, Jesus is correcting the way that they prayed. Uh, They worship God wrongly in their prayers. And so Jesus gives us here some very dynamic instruction about how to uh, correct prayer so that it honors God, that it's done properly, and we can receive the fellowship of prayer and also the petitions that we ask of God. Now we have here in the Lord's Prayer just 66 words, and yet these are so profound that these stand good as a model for prayer of All the prayers that have been prayed by millions of people over thousands of years. But it's not a prayer that was intended to be the prayer uh, that we're to pray. I mean, this is merely an outline that Jesus gave. And it shows us the proper elements of prayer. But every part of it is so significant. And Jesus taught with such brevity that I think it's good for us to look into just every part of this prayer to see what Jesus' intent was as he taught these people. Now, I've chosen to break this prayer down into eight sections that we'll study over the next few weeks. And these are relationship, reverence, rule, rapport, resources, repentance, righteousness, and respect. And our subject today is the first of those, and that is relationship. Now, if you'd stand with me, please, if you look into God's Word, we are going to read uh, the Lord's Prayer again, and we will do this uh, several times Uh, over the course of this study. But if you'll look at verse number 9, where Jesus begins, he says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, uh, we are so thankful for prayer. We're thankful that we can worship you in prayer and that we have an almighty God that we can speak to who sees us and cares for us. And Lord, as we look into this over the next few weeks, I I just pray that you'd open our eyes to the proper way to prayer. May we do this the way that will glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the first 18 verses of chapter 6, Jesus is instructing the people on proper worship. 
Now, we've discussed all three different areas of worship that are talked about in those 18 verses. I've spoken about giving, and that was covered in verses 1 through 4. Then we talked about prayer with some introductory remarks in verses 5 through 8. And then we went on to fasting in verses 16 through 18. Now, each of those areas was very important because those three areas encompass the entirety of worship. Man is designed to glorify God, and the purpose of our creation is to glorify Him, then that means that our worship must be right. Now, it stands to reason that if we're wrong about worship, then certainly we're going to be wrong about the way that we glorify God. Now, giving and personal acts of devotion are ways that we worship God, but the chief means that we have in Scripture is that we go to God in prayer. And that's why in these first 18 verses of chapter 6 that Jesus holds up prayer specifically and he gives it so much detailed instruction. Now we've noticed as we've looked at giving in the, in the first part, in that first area of worship, that the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about instructions about giving. I mean, there's, there's some given about the percentage that we're supposed to give and the place that we're supposed to give and, and certain commands about that. But there's not as much detail as we find about praying. And as we look at fasting, that uh, third area that represented acts of personal devotion, uh, Jesus didn't have much to say about that either. In fact, nowhere will you find in the New Testament that fasting is something that we are commanded to do. There's simply not a whole lot of instruction about it. And so what we learn about fasting is merely from mostly our inductive reasoning about it. Prayer is just not that way. Uh, Prayer is so significant that not only did Jesus teach specifically about prayer, but Jesus modeled that in his own life. Jesus' prayers were so remarkable that the disciples went to him, and we read that in Luke 11 last week, where they specifically asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, these verses in chapter 6 are instructions on the most important of all worship centers. Our chief means of worship is prayer, and so thus Jesus very carefully guides us through the mechanics of proper prayer. Now, every statement that Jesus made in the prayer, again, is highly significant, and so it does require careful study. So today we're going to look at relationship. Jesus began the prayer by saying, after this manner, and then what follows that is this model prayer, and it begins with this all-important part, which is our relationship with God. And so Jesus says, our Father, which art in heaven. Now, that is the theme of our sermon today, and that is that we address the Father, our address to the Father. If there's any standout feature of Jesus' teachings that characterizes his ministry, I would have to say that that would be controversy. Jesus was a very controversial teacher, and so much so that the religious leaders often didn't know what they should do with Jesus. I mean, he'd never been to the rabbinical schools, and he had no formal training. And yet when Jesus spoke, what he had to say was so uncommon, and he spoke with such authority, and the people recognized that. And you'll see that a few weeks down the road when we get the very last part of the Lord's Prayer. The people recognized the authority of Jesus. And so the scribes and the Pharisees didn't know what to do with him, because when Jesus spoke, people sat up and they listened to him. They paid attention. And in his instructions on prayer, there's probably not a more controversial way that Jesus could have begun when he started with these words, when he said, Our Father. Now, there was not a Jew who would have begun a prayer that way. 
Uh, Although the Jews were very big on prayer, uh, they taught prayer regularly. They instructed their children from a very early age about how to pray and what to pray. Yet there's not one of them that would have actually began their prayers in the way that Jesus did. Jesus addressed uh, God in in this way. He said, Our Father... Now, sometimes the Jews would use those terms, but they certainly didn't mean it in the sense that Jesus did. And that's because the Jews didn't regard God in a personal way. Uh, They weren't disposed to look at him as if they would have an intimate relationship with him, and so they wouldn't call him Father. Now, we notice that there are some times in, in Scripture where they did call him Father, but that's very rare in the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus called him the Father, and scholars have said that this was a unique way of addressing, uh, the fa- addressing God uh, at that particular time. Now, perhaps we see this more clearly when we go to the book of Mark, and when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And there, Jesus proceeded Father with the word Abba. And that indicates a very uh, close relationship because that is a term of endearment. It's very similar to us using the word Daddy or the word Papa. And so when Jesus addressed the Father, it was in an intimate way, in the same way that a young child would, would speak to his own father in that type of relationship. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll find that in all the prayers that Jesus prayed, he always talked to God in that way. Every prayer that he prayed, except one, he always addressed God as his Father. Now, the notable exception to that was when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And you remember when Jesus cried out to God and he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's the only time in Scripture where you find Jesus addressing the Father, not as the Father, but as his God. And he did that because that was a moment of separation. That was when God the Father turned his back on his own son. Jesus was bearing the sins of his people, and so God could not look on sin. And so that is the only time that we find where Jesus didn't address God as his Father. And so he spoke to him that way because that was something that preserved that intimate relationship that he had with God. Now, as we look in the Old Testament, we do find Israel praying many, many times. And as I said a moment ago, they did at times use Father. But oddly enough, as you read through the Old Testament and the volumes of prayers that are spoken there, there's only three times in all of the Old Testament where the Jews actually address God as Father. And when they did, they didn't necessarily have the same connotation with that saying as what Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6. And so when Jesus used this term, and when he authorized his disciples also to use it, it was truly controversial. And it was considered to be blasphemous. Jesus knew that the Pharisees uh, would be very strongly resistant to it. And they would be angered by these kinds of terms. And we see that in John 5.18. That's what happened. There it says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but also he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus made those kinds of statements in in order to prove that he was uniquely the Son of God. And when he authorized his disciples to use that term of endearment, what Jesus was doing was provoking religious scandal. Now that shows us in itself the uniqueness of the way that Jesus prayed and the way that he taught. 
His practice and his teaching were very much different from what these people had learned before from their religious leaders. So as we look at this address in prayer, I think there are some very unique aspects of it. I want to give you three unique aspects of the way that we address God. Now, first of all, is that the person is exclusive. We're taught here that the person that we are to pray to is the Father. Now, in an earlier overview of this subject uh, a few weeks ago, we spent some time on this particular aspect of prayer. The Bible teaches that we are to address the Father. And so we're not to pray to other members of the Godhead. Jesus did not say that you are to address your prayers to me. And he doesn't say here that you are to pray to the Holy Spirit. He teaches us that the proper way to pray is to address God as our Father. Now, certainly we do know that Jesus is involved in our prayers and the Holy Spirit is also involved. Uh, Jesus is the one who authorizes prayer. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. The Holy Spirit is involved in our prayers because he's the one that introduces us to the Father and he's the one who carries uh, those prayers. And so every prayer that we pray does have all three members of the Godhead involved. The Trinity is there, but Jesus is very clear about this as to whom we are to address when we pray. And so we pray wrongly when we don't address the Father. Now, I have been asked... Uh, several times before, and I've discussed this in our forum class, if you attend, uh, what happens if we make a mistake? And what happens if we say something else instead of Father? What if we do pray to Jesus? Well, what about if we pray to the Holy Spirit? I mean, can we say that all of our prayers are disqualified because we've addressed them wrongly? Well, I do think that the Holy Spirit corrects many of the mistakes that we make when we pray. And when we do those innocently and we're not rebellious, then certainly God hears those prayers when he knows that it comes from a true heart. But I will say to this, say to this about it, that, that if you know this instruction, if you've been told this, and, and, and you read this in the Scriptures, and you purposely ignore that, and you say, well, I just love Jesus so much that he's the one that I want to pray for. And you skip over the Father and you say, uh, I, want to pray and I want to pray to Jesus. Well, I would say that if you're disobedient in what Jesus says here and you do that purposely, then a rebellious person is not showing love for Jesus. You have to obey Scripture and you must obey God and obey what Jesus says in order uh, to be obedient to him. And so if you are stubborn and rebellious about this and you say, I will not pray to the Father, I just love Jesus and I want to pray to him, then you'd be wrong in your prayers. And I don't think those are prayers that God would hear. Now, we see this kind of instruction in several other places. If you just look back at the verse preceding this, in verse number 8, Jesus says, Be ye not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before ye ask him. And so Jesus is clear here about who that prayer is to be addressed to. Now, the disciples, when they asked Jesus to teach them to pray in Luke chapter 11, they had observed Jesus' prayers, and they noticed that he was doing something different. He was praying to the Father. And so that was the example. The Father is the exclusive person of our prayers. Then another aspect that we see about uh, prayer addressed to the Father is that the people are exclusive. The only way that a person could pray our Father is if the person has a relationship. Now, you couldn't go to uh, Gerald Smith, who was my father, and say to him, "Uh, well, Daddy, would you please help me out with this? I mean, would you give me a little bit of money, or would you do something for me? 
You wouldn't do that because you don't have a relationship with my father. You can't go and call him dad, especially that intimate relationship, because that relationship doesn't exist. And when Jesus says, our father, he's speaking of this very close relationship that exists only between God and those who are his children. Now, that's very confusing to many people because one of the greatest misconceptions that people have is that they are in relationship with God, that just because God is the creator, because they know uh, a God is out there somewhere, they just commonly believe that there is a God and he's a benevolent God, and so therefore they just automatically have a relationship with him. And that's commonly expressed many times by terms such as this, the universal fatherhood of God, or the universal brotherhood of man. But the Bible does not teach either of those concepts. There's one verse of Scripture that very quickly dispels that notion. It's Jesus' statement concerning these very Jews that throughout the Sermon on the Mount he's seeking to refute. And we find that in John 8, verse 44. He said to them, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now there we see that Jesus spoke to these people and he says to them, you are of your father the devil. In other words, he's saying you're not a child of God, you're not of the father now, there's a lot of interesting doctrine that we could draw out of John 8.44, lots of things that we could discuss there, but there's one thing we surely can't miss, is that you cannot be a child of the devil and be a child of God at the very same time. And so uh, Jesus makes a very clear distinction that there are two different types of people. Some people are children of the devil, and some people are children of God. So what is it that makes the difference? I mean, can you just... Hold up your hand this morning, you say, well, I am a child of God, and all the rest of you, you're the child of the devil. Are you able to do that? You know, I was born a few years ago, and I would tell you how many that was, but I, you can rest assured that when I was in that hospital nursery, I wasn't looking out there through the window at all the parents that were standing out there and looking through on the other side, looking at all the sweet little babies, and of course I was primary and all of that, but if, if, if they're looking at all the sweet little babies that are there, I assure you that I did not say, you know what, I like those parents over there. Uh, that looks like a good couple to me. That's Gerald and Shirley Smith, so you two come on in here and you take me home because I'm going to be your child. Well, you know, that's foolishness. You couldn't do that. And folks, no more can you call yourself a child of God unless you have a relationship with him. And the Bible teaches that in order to have a relationship with God, you must be born again. Now, born again, that's God's work. You don't have any part in that. God regenerates. He calls you to repentance and faith. And so there is a difference in people that have been born again by the Spirit of God and those who have not been born again of the Spirit of God. Now, here's what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 26. He says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So there's the differentiation. The children of God and the children of the devil are different. God is the father of those who have faith in Christ. And so that rules out anyone who's not a believer. 
You have to be born again. And if you've not trusted Christ personally to save you from your sins, and if you don't have your hope and your confidence in Him, and if you have not entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you have no right to pray to God. You have no relationship to Him. It rules out a lot of people. Now, there are a lot of generic prayers that are prayed, and it's evident that the petitioner who prays has no relationship with God. They leave Christ out, and they think they're going to go around Him, and they'll go directly to the Father. God does not hear those prayers. Prayer is exclusive. There has to be this uh, privilege that you have of calling God our Father or your Father, and Jesus only authorizes that by the relationship. And so an intimate relationship only exists with God when you have been born again by the Spirit of God. And so there are many people who pray all kinds of different things and all different kinds of ways and ask for many different types of things. But God does not hear those kinds of prayers. There must be the relationship. And the Apostle Paul dealt with this erroneous idea when he was teaching in the city of Athens. And he was speaking to the people there, and he quoted from one of the ancient philosophers. And he said, we are all the offspring of God. Now, that was something the Athenians could agree with. Uh, Yes, we are the offspring of God. And that was a, a statement of a generic relationship. We do have a connection with God because of our creation. But then Paul followed that up with a crushing blow, and it showed that the relationship that they had with whatever God that they thought was the true God was certainly not an intimate one, and the relationship with that unknown God that he was preaching about uh, on Mars Hill uh, was not an intimate one. He says that the Creator God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And when he said that, he brought Jesus Christ into the picture, and he was declaring that Jesus is the righteous judge... And he is the one who is the judge by virtue of the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's where all that discourse was going. Paul was telling these people that repentance is demanded. Faith in Christ is demanded, or you can't have a relationship with God. God commands repentance. And so that means that there must be this knowledge of Christ. And to refuse God, refuse Jesus Christ, and that relationship is to rule you out as a person who can speak to God in prayer. So what we have here is very exclusive territory. You dare not tread on this ground unless you have that relationship. Now, this is a doctrine, I'm sure you know, that's strenuously disliked by people today. As much as the Pharisees disliked being called the children of the devil, people today do not like to be told that they can't have a relationship with God outside of Jesus Christ. But I want to ask you, what makes you any different from these people? What is it that makes you different? If you haven't received Christ, you're not different from those who heard these very same words right out of the lips of the Master himself. You're no different from them. They rejected Christ also. And so if you do, Jesus does not include you in the group that says you can call God our Father. And that is exactly what Jesus is correcting here. He's he's correcting all of that and putting things back into the right perspective. Now, if we look at this from another aspect uh, concerning the people of prayer, just what is it that makes Christianity what it is? Now, in America, we're used to saying that we live in a Christian nation. And by that, we mean that for uh, 
the entirety of our history, the predominant religion of America has been Christianity. Uh, We claim that our forefathers were Christian, and we see the influence that's there in the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. And you can't mistake by reading those documents that there was at least this semblance of belief in Christianity. But the problem for everybody is that Christianity is more than a set of principles that we live by. It's more than just an ethical standard that's been established. It's not a code of ethics. Christianity is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And you can't be a Christian just by saying, well, I was born into a Christian family. You can't say I'm a Christian because I've read the Bible. You can't be a Christian just by saying that you admit that there was this historical person who was named Jesus. He was a pretty good fellow. He did a lot of good things, and so therefore I call myself a Christian. Christianity is the person of Christ. And you cannot relegate him to the sidelines. You cannot bypass him on your way to the Father. The Bible reveals Christ as the manifestation of the Father. He is the central figure of Scripture. That's Christ. And so everything that happens in relationship to God has to find its center in Christ, or else you no longer have the God of the Bible. And then you don't have real Christianity. Now here is the very reason why we reject Mormonism as being Christian. It's why we reject the Jehovah Witnesses as being Christian and why we reject reject all the other cults that call themselves Christian because they do not recognize Christ as God. Now, when Jesus used the word Father in places like Matthew 6, and when he said, when you pray, do it this way, our Father which art in heaven, he was expressing that unique relationship that exists between the two. And based upon that relationship, Christ is the only one who can include us in this family that we call the family of God. And that's because he and the Father are one. You can't get around one to get to the other. He and the Father are one. And so Jesus is the one who identifies you as being a child of the Father. Now, I hope you're getting all that, because in a politically correct society that wants to call anyone and everyone a child of God, there is no basis on which to stand except a self-proclamation. Now, the Bible rules that out. Now, relative truth may say that that's all right, but if you're going to go by the Scriptures, go by what Jesus says, what God says, then it rules out anyone of having that relationship who does not know Jesus Christ. And so we see there's a unique relationship between the Father and the Son. It's a relationship that is bestowed upon Christ all authority. And so when he speaks, that is the Father speaking. And when he says that there is prohibition, there is exclusivity in this manner of prayer, he has all authority to proclaim it. And so Jesus Christ is the one who includes whom he wants to include, and he leaves out all those that he wants to exclude. And so when he gave these instructions, and he says, pray this way, you say, our Father, then he was granting permission for us to address God as Daddy. He's our Abba as well. We have a relationship with God based upon our faith in Christ, who is the eternal Son. Now, when we were born physically, our nature did not permit that. I mean, we we couldn't be called the sons of God just by virtue of creation. And I want to show you why. And that's because to say that we have a relationship with God simply because of God's universal fatherhood is, in effect, to deny the sinful nature of man. 
Now, how does that work out? Well, the truth of the matter is that God does not have imperfect children. Now, maybe you didn't know that. Now, many parents think that their children are not imperfect. But I I know your kids, so I know better than that. God, though, really does not have imperfect children. Now, in verse 48 of chapter 5, the Scripture tells us that. Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, a few verses above that, uh, he tells them what they have to do to be children of the Father. And the summation of all of that is he says that you must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. So God does not have imperfect children. Some of you are very puzzled right now. And you're looking at me like, what kind of a doctrine are you teaching now? How is it possible that God does not have imperfect children? Now, you husbands, you know that your wife tells you all the time how imperfect that you are. I mean, when you're watching football and not paying attention to her, when she fusses about that, that's her way of saying you are not perfect. And I know this, you know, when I come to, uh, to church on Sunday morning and I'm ready to preach a sermon, lots of times before I ever get out of my office over there, I've already heard about some church member who's been involved in this or that or something's gone wrong. And I know that there's a lot of sin that's happening. And so you might say, well, how in the world could you say that God's children must be perfect. How can you be a child of the Father and be perfect? Well, there has to be something that God knows about us in order to judge us as perfect and to tell that we're his children. Now, what is that? Well, it's Christ, and it's Christ only. Now, here's the way that Paul puts it. He says, for ye are dead. Colossians 3, 3, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, that means that your old man is dead. What you were before, before your salvation, that's dead. And as far as God is concerned, your new life is in Christ. Your old life has been hidden in Christ. Now, now God has then made you perfect in his eyes. You, you have been adopted into the Father's family because of your belief in Christ. And so when God looks at you, even though in your flesh you still do sin, and I'm not denying that people sin. I do it, you do it, we all know what we do. But when God looks at you, he is not seeing your sin. He looks at you as his child in Christ. And so he looks at Christ who has, been, has given you his own righteousness. You have received the perfection of Christ in your soul. You've been given this new nature so that when God looks at you, he's not looking at sin that you have committed. That's all hidden. It's all been put under the blood of Jesus Christ. And so actually in God's eyes, you are perfect. And you can't be his child unless you've had that righteousness applied. And that's what makes you perfect in God's eyes. Now, that brings us back to the central issue then of why you can call God uh, our Father or your Father. It's only because of Christ. And so then, anyone who is outside of Christ could not be included in this statement where Jesus says, our Father. So our Father presupposes that relationship with Christ. It's a relationship that Christ has, and based upon our faith in him, we have access to the Father granted on an exclusive basis. And so, friends, there are only certain people that can come to God, only certain ones who can pray, and those are the ones who have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have one more point that I'd like to make today about addressing the Father, and that is that the place is exclusive. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, which is 
in heaven. Last month, I had the sad privilege of preaching a memorial service for one of our church members that passed away. Brother Don Head went home to be with the Lord on December 1st of last month. And I was preaching the memorial sermon, and I, I began it this way. I said that Don was the loving husband of Joanne, and the father of two daughters, Denise and LaDonna, and the father of a son, Everett. And there were some people who came up to me afterwards, and they said, well, well who is this Everett? We, we don't know who that is. And they didn't even know that Don had a son. Well, actually, Everett was Don's stepson, and he passed away several years ago. But Joanne told me that Don loved Everett as his own son, and he raised him as his own son. And Don was a good father to him, and So there was no trouble at all that Everett would come to Don and call Don his dad. Now, I thought that was a good illustration of how our Heavenly Father treats us. He adopts us into his family, and he allows us as his children to call him daddy. But do you know there are many people that don't have that kind of relationship with their earthly fathers? Uh, They don't have that kind of relationship. I think about my wife when, when she was young. About the only thing that she could remember about her father was that he used to come home drunk and that he took all the family's money and spent it on liquor so that her mom had to go to work and support her, her sister, and her brother. Now, her mother decided that she was going to leave her father because of that, and so the only memories that most of the memories that she has of her, of her father would be of that drunken man who showed up in their house. Well, then her, her mom married another man. And my wife didn't have a very good relationship with him. It was not very good. And so I never heard her call her stepfather dad. She always addressed him by his first name because there was not that close, intimate relationship. And so you find some people that really don't have comfort in this, that they call God father. It really doesn't mean very much to them because they haven't had that experience with an earthly father. And so they shy away from that term. And that's when we need to be reminded of the exclusive place. He is our Father in heaven. Now, He's a perfect Father. So all that you could ever imagine a Father to be, and all the best memories that you would ever have of your Father, God is that. All of the, uh, of the earthly provisions, the best that can be given, the love of a Father to His children, the support that a Father gives, the protection that a Father gives. Our Father God is the superlative of all of that. And so it's a great privilege, and Jesus has granted a privilege beyond our wildest hopes and dreams that we could go to God and call Him our Father. And so you can call Him Daddy. There's a personal relationship. And there's not only such a relationship that you desire to come to Him, but there is also so much more the desire of God the Father that you should come to Him. Now, many have said that what is most misunderstood about prayer is that God the Father is more anxious to bless us than we are to be blessed. I remember in 1995 that our daughter Clarissa turned 16 years old. Now, she was our first child, so naturally she was the first one to turn 16. And I decided that for that birthday that uh, we were going to buy her a new car. And so her mom and I, we went out shopping for a car, and she had no idea that we were going to do this. But on her 16th birthday, we had this great big party. She had lots of her friends that were there. And while they were all inside partying in the house, we had this new car 
parked up the street. I believe, if I remember correctly, it was at my sister's house who lived up the street from us. And we parked that car in the garage and had it all shined up, a brand-new car, had a big bow that was placed on top of it, and then there was a personalized uh, license plate that was put on the front of it. And so while they were inside the house just having this great party, um, I went down and got the car and drove it up to our house, and I pulled it right up in the front yard all the way to the front door of the house, right to the porch. So we went inside and, and told her to come out, and she came out, and the look on her face was priceless. There she has this new, bright, red, shiny car. All of the neighborhood comes out to see what's going on. And you see, as a father, and her mother as well involved, that we were willing to do more than what our daughter would ask. We wanted to do this for her. It's just something we wanted to do. Now, that changed a whole lot when Lauren turned 16. Uh, She saw what happened with Clarissa, and so before she ever turned 16, she said, Dad, we're going car shopping. So there was no surprise to it, and she was not ashamed at all to ask for a new car. But this is the way... Our Heavenly Father is. He's given us that privilege that we can come to him and we can call him Daddy. And he is just so pleased that he can bless us. And so in these instructions on prayer, Jesus taught this radically new way of approaching God. Nobody had done it this way before. Nobody had dared come to God this way. But Jesus taught that the Father has an intimate relationship with us and that relationship is because of our faith in Christ. Now, the question is, do you have that relationship? Are you a child of God so that you can go to him and and in prayer you can say, Our Father, you say, My Father. And friend, you can be a child of God by faith today in the Lord Jesus Christ. All you need to do is just trust him as your Savior. And then you can bow your head in confidence and assurance and you can say, Our Father, which art in heaven. That's what Jesus has granted us in this part of the Lord's Prayer. We can call on God as our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call upon you, that because of faith in Jesus Christ and you giving your own Son to die for our sins, now we can come to you and call you Father. There is that relationship, and we just thank you, Lord, for that and how that thrills our soul to know that you care for us, you love us, and we just thank you for it today. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is not able, honestly, to call upon you as Father. They've not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, so there is no relationship. I just ask you, Lord, that you would open their heart today, that you'd make them realize that the only way that they can approach you is to come through your Son, Jesus Christ. And then, as the choir Uh, saying today that they can pray to you and they can plead the blood of Jesus Christ for their uh, petitions and know, God, that you hear based upon his blood. So I ask you, Lord, that you would bless today. Uh, Speak to someone's heart. Draw us all closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.